Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Well, for those on the East Coast, our hearts and prayers still go out to those people uh, in the Caribbean, Puerto Rico, U.S. Virgin Islands, and other islands, uh, and people in South Florida whose lives have been just complete, completely upended. Even some in North Florida uh, who got it far worse than uh, uh, most people imagined that they would. Uh, so many people are still waiting for help and uh, even still waiting for any word from anyone. Uh, I would urge everyone to think about <clears throat> going online and seeing what they can do to uh, alleviate the suffering that's going on as a result of the hurricanes. Tonight we talk about the courtroom and what goes on in it. Objection. What does that mean? And is that enough? This is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, September, whoops, uh, September 28th, 2017. Joining us as co-host again is Charles Marshall, an experienced litigator in California. I just had a nice conversation with Katie Porter, who is running for Congress in California. She seeks to be a force to stop the banks from their illegal and untrustworthy actions, and she's kind of a secret weapon. Katie Porter is actually someone who who knows some of the stuff that was pulled by the banks. It was her seminal study in 2007, 10 years ago, that confirmed my worst fears back then, that the notes were being destroyed and that only copies of everything were being used so that the banks could sell the same loan over and over again in a variety of different packages. Anyway, I recommend you go to visit the Katie Porter site if you're interested in political action and not just legal action against the banks. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, and Charles Marshall is broadcasting live from San Diego, California. And this show is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, AMGAR, 
and the Garfield firm with offices in South in Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345, which is our main number, but not the number to reach this show. Pledge whatever you think you can afford. We appreciate it. If this show has value for you, then make the contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. When you finish the program, please call 202-838-6345 or hit the donate button on the Living Lies blog at livinglies.wordpress.com. And another special note, to those who have experience with crowdfunding, we have a very large IT project that we have planned for launch, and we have the technical people to produce automated document generation for each user in each individual case to help homeowners and their lawyers fight the banks. And we need funding in order to make this happen for you. If you have experience and knowledge, please contact me at neilfgarfield at hotmail.com. If you want to offer your services, we are approaching the time where we close out the possibility of new people to consider. There is compensation for those people who assist in this project. I've watched or read the transcript of hundreds of civil actions, including foreclosure actions. And I've conducted, by my count, something like 2,000 trials or final hearings in the course of my career of 40-plus years. Lawyers boldly asserting their prowess in the hallways of courthouses all the time. They're attempting to instill confidence in their client who is nervous as hell and who is paying them to appear at trial. Many of them sound terrific in the hallway. I call them hallway lawyers. That's probably unfair, but it's still the way I see it. But once they get into the courtroom, they're quiet. They're even meek. Their excuse is that they don't want to anger the judge, as if the judge cares whether they raise objections or not. The truth is what Chief Justice Berger said around 40 years ago. Chief Justice Berger being Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, he said that, 98% of lawyers who show up in a courtroom have no business being there. It goes without saying that 99.999% of pro se litigants have no clue about civil procedure, court orders, trial orders, discovery, motions to compel, and objections, which, if not timely made, are waived. The biggest error bordering on legal malpractice at trial is lack of preparation. 
That, in turn, results in a lack of a plan of attack on objections and a lack of a specific plan for cross-examination. Imagine, if you will, for a second, a surgeon who has no idea what he's going to do when he enters the operating room and doesn't walk in uh, to a place where there will be available to him a scalpel and clamps and sponges and all the things that go along with surgery. Lawyers who win cases spend time going over and over again in their minds potential questions, objections, answers, and attacks. If they don't do that, they end up asking the wrong question at the wrong time or the right question in the wrong order. When you ask a robo-witness if be sure that these are the records of the servicer, it better be because your next questions are going to show that he has no idea about the authenticity of the books and records. Otherwise, you just drilled in the fact that the robo-witness is sure that those are the right records of the servicer. The better plan, in my opinion, is to establish a foundation of your own in which you close all the doors in the room and then pounce on the guy in the middle. So you start off with the questions that, that show the witness knows nothing, has seen nothing, has access to nothing, doesn't know who gets paid by the servicer, doesn't know the certificate holders or investors, and has no idea whether a transaction took place between an alleged seller of the loan and an alleged purchaser. The most common mistake I see in courtrooms is on objections without stating the basis of the objections and secondarily or maybe primarily uh, the making of objections that are untimely. Once your opposition has opened the door to hearsay evidence, or evidence without foundation. You must object immediately. If, if you wait to the end of the, of the line of questioning, you've waived that basis for objections and several others, like lack of foundation, which is a hole that you've allowed them to plug up by what should have been excluded as hearsay evidence. These errors are the ones I see on cross-examination, and they occur for one reason only, and the converse is also true. When the trial lawyer does bring his scalpel for surgery, he cuts into his opposition and does everything he can to destroy the underpinnings of the case against his client if he's on the defense. Um, or the uh, defense case uh, if he is prosecuting a claim. As for angering the judge, nobody wants to gratuitously anger a judge without a plan in mind. But the whole reason the lawyers are in the courtroom is to fight for the client. Take a, take a pie in the face. Come back swinging. And if that means confronting the judge, that is what you are there for. It's not about the next case, and it's not about your hurt feelings. 
And by the way, the only lawyers that judges really respect are the ones that do confront them strongly but civilly. I know I have been a specially appointed judge, and I have many friends who are or were judges. Some are good friends. But in the courtroom, I will confront them and opposing counsel, even if it is annoying. Why? Because my job is to win, not for myself, but for my client. And whatever it takes to get to get a win, I'll do it. And I know Charles here feels the same way. I, for one, have been cuffed twice for contempt of court. In each case, the cuffs were removed, so I avoided jail time like my cousin Vinny. But tempers sometimes flare when you're in a battle to save what is left of your client's life. Charles, welcome. Yeah, absolutely, Neil. Uh, Everything you're saying, I've, I've seen it up close and personal myself. And one of the things that strikes me is, you know, even apart from hearsay, on the objection front, there, there are a number of things that, that attorneys can do to try to keep out bad evidence and on occasion set the table for, for preserving their own evidence. But in terms of keeping out bad evidence, the, there are a number of, of evidentiary objections, everything from a situation where you're getting a run of facts from the opposition when none of those have been introduced into evidence. Uh, you're having um, cross-examination or redirect examination, and the attorney on the other side is going beyond the scope of what they should be presenting. Uh, you have compound question situations, and sometimes you have the counsel testifying. They're not really referring to the evidentiary record. And sometimes what they say is so confusing, vague, or ambiguous that it should be called out. And as Neil, you know, you yourself were just saying, and the listeners should know this, the quicker you can put out those objections, the better, uh, because it preserves the evidentiary record. And another thing that Neil brings up consistently when talking about this topic, you need to put in as the attorney a motion to strike after you object to given evidence because without that motion to strike hypothetically and in fact more than hypothetically without the motion to strike the the evidence is still on the record so your objection in a sense will have not had the attended effect even if the judge uh you know upholds and if you do get a a judge who upholds a given objection then you ask for the motion to strike, though I, I would do it even sooner. And then uh, when, when you get the, the judge's assent to your objection, uh, you, you can ask for the motion to strike at that time again, or you can even say, request that the record reflect the uh, objection being sustained, something like that. Uh, but I, I, I like, say in terms of, I, I like so ahead, uh, the motion strike. I like uh, after my uh, objection uh, like on foundation, which is one that a lot of people just ignore. uh, Once it's sustained, uh, I move to strike the witness's answer and the 
opposing counsel's question because my objection was sustained. That takes everything out of the record, and if you end up on appeal, you don't want that in the record uh, for the court to, or for an appellate court to even read, unless the issue is whether or not the objection should have been sustained, in which case they can produce it. So yes, and the, the everything that you said that really strikes me as as worth expanding on is yeah the attorney even if you're pro 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 se you're not in there to be the the judge's friend that's for sure and judges will more typically rule in your favor if they respect your your advocacy for your own case or when you have an attorney his or her advocacy uh they want to see that your side is contesting and your side is presenting strong arguments on behalf of your case. And that, if that creates friction, which of course it will, that's what the whole uh, contesting feature of the adversary system is all about. If there's some friction, then the judge will roll with that. And, you know, I've had situations where I've consistently gotten in judges' faces. Um, I haven't faced some of the contempt sanctions that, that Neil has faced. Um, I have been dragged into chambers by judges and they told, cut it out, what you're doing, you know, I'm going to hold you in contempt. And if what I was doing was effective and was preserving the evidentiary record in a way that I was intending, I continued to bring the objections. And sometimes, you know, that could have been a bridge too far. There's some tactical uh, decisions to make as you're in the moment in these trials. But if you're not pushing up against the judge, you're not doing your job in these types of foreclosure cases. In any civil case, I mean, it doesn't make any difference, or for that matter, even a criminal case. Uh, uh, I, I think these discussions uh, are applicable to, to everything. And uh, the purpose uh, for tonight's show is to give a little poke at the lawyers who may have forgotten that the best evidence of a document is the actual original document and not blithely accept a copy of the note, the PSA, the assignment, or some other contract or correspondence or what have you. Um, and, and by the way, speaking of best evidence, uh, you'll have a lot more success with that if you made an earnest effort to have them produce the original document uh, before trial and you did a motion to compel when they didn't because what you're going to find is that virtually no PSA is complete and many of them are not signed. And then you can file a motion in limine that says they can't use the PSA as the basis of their authority to be in court. And if it's a trust, that kind of knocks the trust out of being there. Um, uh, the the other objections, I think we mentioned, lead, well, leading, 
uh, is an objection that is easily waived if you don't bounce up. I mean, I compared my conduct in one trial a year ago uh, to doing uh, uh, deep knee bends because I, I was sitting down and jumping up, uh, objecting and moving to strike. Um, uh, hearsay, um, even the note is hearsay if a proper foundation hasn't been laid. Um, um, and, and don't assume, if you haven't seen my article on this, don't assume that they have the original note. In many cases, they'll make reference to the fact that they already filed it in the court file, and lawyers, and I made this mistake myself, will not look in the court file to see if the original note is there. I just had a case where it turned out it wasn't. Um, so then you go on to... Oh, we're running out of time already tonight. Um, Cross-examination. And this is why, if you listen to Charles, you listen to me, people should know that if they are a pro se litigant, they're going to be eaten alive in the courtroom. Because unless you know the rules, the laws of evidence, the rules of procedure and so forth, you're going to get killed. So... And I understand that it's harder and harder to find a lawyer. And that's something we're trying to do some things about. But uh, uh, it's still true that unless you walk into the courtroom with a lawyer, you're just not going to know what's going on, much less what to do. So yeah, that's absolutely turn- true. I mean, there's so many. Yeah, Neil, there's so many. We're talking about literally thousands of, of, you know, versions and tentacles of specific rules. I mean, there are hundreds of evidentiary rules related to trial practice, and there are dozens of basic objections, and then there's spinoffs of those, and unless the attorney who's presenting your case has specific jousting experience in a trial environment, with these types of issues, it's simply implausible to think that somebody could come in without that seasoned experience and be able to present a credible case that, that the judge will consider. Right. And, and you know, the other thing that I want to touch on here while we have time is, is that on cross-examination, you got to have that plan and know what you're doing. So, uh, in order and in order to plan, you have to prepare. So, for example, if you've got U.S. Bank uh, saying that it's appearing as trustee for the certificate holders of blah 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 blah, then they're there for the certificate holders, and that's what they're saying. That's what they're alleging, and that's what they're allowed to prove. If they want to say that they're there for the trust, that's a different pleading. And an appropriate question would be, oh, so you're here representing the holders of certificates? Yes. And you, how do you lead them into that? You show them the pleading and uh, ask them if the pleading is correct. And so then you can say, well, then Aquin or whoever it is 
uh, is representing the interests of the holders of the certificates. Right. Do you know who the who the holders of the certificates are? No. Do you know if any record exists in Aquin that um, uh, identifies the certificate holders? No. Have you ever had access to any records relative to how the certificate holders got paid? No. So now you're building a case that's somewhat unique in the judge's mind, and instead of it being, you know, down the middle as as he or she usually rules, you got an opportunity to get a different result. That's just an example. The cross-examination should take the better part of an afternoon, if not a whole day. Um, I think that... Uh, uh, the uh, desire for a win is there with, with virtually all lawyers, but I think the willingness to do the, the preparation and planning is, for, for many lawyers, just not present to the extent that it is needed to win. And, um, and being on your toes, like in a case I was... Uh, uh, in with uh, uh, Patrick Junta in South Florida. Um, uh, U.S. Bank tried to get a document in that had not previously been disclosed. And Patrick immediately objected and said, that hasn't been disclosed before. We've never heard of that document nor seen it. And the judge asked me, and he handed it to me, and I said, no, I've never seen it either. And she excluded it. And, uh, uh, and that's what set her off, frankly, on a different direction, uh, scrutinizing other evidence that they were trying to put in front of her and make a case. We eventually won that case. So... Um, uh, I, I the, the point I want to raise here is that uh, good trial lawyers are for the most part a little obsessive about their cases. They keep running dis different scenarios through their head. And, uh, you know, you make a plan just like a football team makes a plan before they go on the field. You have the kickoff and everything changes you got to be prepared for that. But if you start off with a plan, that means that you've got knowledge about everything from the beginning of the pleadings to that point in time. And you're able to deal with it on your feet. Now, when, uh, uh, when Charles tries a case, I've, I've not personally witnessed it, but I've heard him talk about it, he's always thinking strategy. He's always thinking tactics. He's always thinking how he's going to undercut the case on the other side and make his client look better to the trier of fact, whether it's a jury or a judge. Am I right, Charles? Absolutely. And you have to do a lot of things all at once. You have to be able to think on your feet you have to respond to everything that's happening from the judge, from the opposition. And you have to put together your verbal responses to that very quickly. And to go back to your theme for the show, I mean, you know, just 
coming up, even if it's it's irritating the judge and irritating the opposition, and, and often it will, you just continue to object. I mean, there's rarely a case where you shouldn't be objecting a lot because the, the rules of evidence allow a lot of different types of objection. And it does wear down both the judge and the other side and even the jury with the jury trial sometimes. They can end up coming over to your side more just because you keep pounding the drum and, and that, that does get attention in and of itself as, as long as what you're pounding is credible and you, you stay with your theme despite, you know, warnings from the judge and other, other stuff going on. Plus, in front of a jury, if your objections are consistently sustained, which means you had a good plan, it gives you more credibility both with the judge or if there's a jury present. So, actually, that's Absolutely. the end of tonight's show. Uh, we ran out of time because we have a short period of time tonight. We'll see you again next week. Thank you, Charles Mark. Absolutely, Neil. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.